as a culture. Are we afraid, asleep, or are we waking up? I speak with Michael Kinneman, former head of the National Council of Churches, about his new book, The Witness of Religion in an Age of Fear. I've almost uh, concluded that security is the most dangerous word in the English language anymore. Uh, We justify all kinds of things in the name of it. Steve Taylor is the author of several books on psychology and spirituality. In his latest book, The Leap, he writes about spiritual awakening. What does it mean to wake up and how do we do it? Usually um, the higher echelons of society, certainly political positions, are usually filled with people who are very soundly asleep, very acutely asleep, because those people have a very strong desire for accumulation. But if you're awake, you don't have those desires. You don't have the desire to accumulate wealth or power or anything like that. It's time now for Courageous Awakening on Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Pacifica Radio Network, Public Radio Exchange, and College Broadcasters Incorporated, and from the studios of KDOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schott. Contemporary American society is saturated with fear, fear that is out of proportion to the actual threats we face. Thus begins Michael Kinneman and his book, the witness of religion in an age of fear. We are afraid. We're afraid of the other, of our future, of terrors real, imagined, and manufactured. How do we respond to fear? And how can our wisdom traditions be helpful and not harmful? Michael Kinneman shows that at the heart of our religious traditions are instruction, wisdom, and practices that summon us to face fear and dismantle it with courage. Michael Kinneman is one of the most widely respected leaders and scholars in the ecumenical movement. He was the General Secretary of the National Council of Churches, the Executive Secretary of the World Council of Churches Commission on Faith and Order, and the Dean of Lexington Theological Seminary. Today I speak with him about fear and his summons to religious people of all kinds to step up and be courageous. Also today on Progressive Spirit, I speak with Steve Taylor. He's a senior lecturer at Leeds Beckett University in the UK and was named by Mind, Body and Spirit magazine as one of the 100 most spiritually influential people in the world. When we think of spiritual awakening, we may think it's for those who spend lifetimes in study or meditation, but Steve Taylor says that wakefulness is accessible to all of us. Courageous Awakening is today's theme. First, Michael Kinneman, welcome. Thank you very much, John. Nice to be with you. Now, your book, The Witness of Religion in an Age of Fear, is a a summons uh, to religious communities to step up and uh, use the practices and wisdom from their traditions to respond to a culture of fear. Why this book and why now? Well, I think the culture um, is saturated with fear. We see this all around us, and I've uh, certainly felt that in the way in which people have responded to the book. It seems to be uh, very timely. That's not to say that fear hasn't been um, a kind of prevalent uh, presence in American culture before. We think of the McCarthy era or the Red Scare earlier than that or the, the Salem witch trials. So we've had moments when fear has been out of proportion to any actual threat, when um, anxiety is misdirected and targeted at the wrong uh, persons or groups. But that seems definitely to be the case now. And what I'm arguing, and I appreciated your starting by mentioning the religious communities, because what I'm arguing is that religious communities, while saying different things, certainly, also have a common message with regard to fear and its place in human society. And if religious communities, Muslims, Jews, Christians, Buddhists, so on, 
were able to speak together about this deep cultural current, I think we would have um, a counterweight message to give to the culture itself. So you, you mentioned a little bit about America, America uh, and fear in the past, the McCarthy era, but is there a, a noticeable change in the amount of fear now and, and say since when? What, since 9-11? It, it's it's hard to uh, quantify this and say uh, when things shifted, but scholars, sociologists generally were arguing in the 1990s that uh, fear was uh, out of sync with the actual cultural threats uh, even before 9-11. But there's no doubt that 9-11 exacerbated it. Uh, give an example, though, with regard to crime. Um, since the early 1990s, uh, crime has been falling in this country. You and the listeners may know this, but um, uh, two-thirds of Americans say that crime is on the increase and is out of control, when in fact it's about 50% of what it was in 1990. Uh, in uh, 2014-15, uh, the, the number of murders, sheer number, not percentage, but number of murders in this country was lower than at any time since 1968 when we had 120 fewer people in this country, a million people in this country. So um, crime definitely is on the decrease, but the perception is that it's increasing and out of control. That indicates that the culture is um, viewing events through a narrative of fear which distorts them. And sociologists were already talking about this in the 1990s. And then, of course, with 9-11, we found that it uh, even uh, the problem grew worse. I want to talk about this narrative of fear, but even before I get there, I want to talk about fear itself and um, and what it does to an individual and a community or a country. Can you take a little time and just talk about uh, the effects of fear? Yes, uh, I don't talk about it uh, on individuals. Uh, this I, I need to say that because people shouldn't buy the book looking for uh, ways out of personal phobias or other things like that. That's not my area of expertise. I'm talking about the effect that it has on, uh, on the public. Um, yeah, when it happens in public life, what we find is that um, um, policy is distorted and decision-making is distorted in public life and aimed at the wrong things. We'll pick on the United States a lot during this uh, time together, I imagine, but let me point, for instance, towards Switzerland. Uh, the Swiss uh, have an issue, as all of Europe does, with regard to issues of immigration, and they need to talk about what it means to be Swiss and also to receive a number of uh, immigrants from other countries. But instead of having that debate, uh, scholars have pointed out what they did was pass legislation banning the building of minarets. This is um, uh, a focused on a surrogate target. It's misdirected. It doesn't deal with the real issue in any kind of depth. In the United States, uh, for example, we um, uh, have this astonishing response to issues of refugees. Uh, the Cato Institute just did a study. It isn't even in the book. It came out uh, since uh, the book was um, finished. Uh, in which they found that since the 1970s, when statistics like this began to be kept, uh, 3.25 million refugees have entered the U.S. under our official government program. 20 of those, 20 out of 3.25 million, have been convicted of attempting or committing any kind of terrorism on U.S. soil. That is 0.00062%. Uh, and not one of those was Syrian. Uh, three Americans have been killed by refugees since the 1970s, and those were by Cuban refugees back in the 1970s. Yet, we had a majority of governors in this country who um, declared uh, after the Paris attacks a year ago that they didn't want uh, Syrian refugees entering their states because they would be a major threat to their populations. This um, runs the risk of uh, not receiving the gifts that we receive from other people. It uh, makes us um, mean-spirited and not uh, welcoming those who are in need of uh, safe haven after being in difficult situations in their own countries. It's, it's simply bad public policy. 
and it seems to be driven by fear. The, the, the real problem that I point to also, and I imagine many of your listeners already have this in mind, is that this kind of fear is being manipulated for political purposes. Um, this proposed ban on uh-huh. refugees and immigrants, for example, doesn't meet any real security need, as the Cato Institute uh, study points out. It's designed to reduce the fear that are felt by persons who've been told they should be afraid. And they've been told this by the media, and they've been told it by politicians. And when that happens, we end up targeting these uh, surrogate victims rather than focusing on real issues. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I flew across the country to visit family. And while waiting in the airport, on a regular rhythm, almost like a liturgy, the pre-recorded announcement uh, reminds us that we need to report any suspicious behavior. And after a while, I could, like liturgy, repeat the various announcements about security and suspicious behavior by heart. And so I'm wondering, what degree do you think that this fear then is manufactured um, by, uh, by institutions, by our government institutions and politics? Well, as they certainly exacerbated. Uh, I, I need to back up, uh, John, and make sure that everyone knows, uh, I'm sure everyone recognizes, that there are legitimate reasons to be afraid of things. Uh, my book uh, certainly doesn't deny that in the least, and some of those are legitimate concerns that we have for national security. I'm certainly not uh, dismissing those uh, out of hand. And any person who's affected by terrorism or by crime is one too many. So I don't, I don't mean to dismiss or minimize the agony that comes when someone suffers at the hands of uh, a criminal or, or a terrorist. But the problem is that, um, that these, when fear becomes the narrative through which we read public events, then we end up uh, exaggerating the real threat. And you've named ways in which that happens in the public arena, and it becomes a snowball. So that we have these announcements, and that increases the level of fear, and that increases the level of security, and uh, security becomes a kind of end in itself. I've almost uh, concluded that security is the most dangerous word in the English language anymore. Uh, We justify all kinds of things in the name of it. Um, justify torture, for instance, uh, in the name of security. Uh, we uh, justify increases in military budget at the expense of dollars for health care and education in the name of security. We relax gun laws and promote gun sales in the name of security. This is um, uh, obviously disturbing. We, we have, many people know this, um, the highest incarceration rate in the world by far, uh, 25% of all of the prisoners in jails or prisons around the world are behind bars in the United States. This is a sign, it seems to me, of, um, of fear trumping hope in public uh, policymaking. Now, for instance, um, now, what, 13, 14, 15 states spend more on jails and prisons than they do on universities and colleges. My goodness. Yeah. Uh, is this really the kind of uh, public decision-making that we want? Some of that uh, clearly is uh, driven by other factors, but a lot of it by a kind of misplaced fear, in my judgment. And you've already noted how this gets um, reinterpreted by the media and, and uh, then also by used by politicians. I'm speaking with Michael Kinneman. He is the uh, author of The Witness of Religion in an Age of Fear. Michael Kinneman is uh, a leader in the ecumenical movement, and he's uh, his book is a summons to religion to find its resources to address fear. You have a chapter on uh, Israel-Palestine as a case study. Uh, to what degree is fear on both sides crippling any kind of peace process? I wish I knew better on the Palestinian side. I've had some colleagues tell me since that there are studies that I didn't look at there that uh, show the level of fear in Palestinian culture. Um, but the better-known studies are on the Israeli side. Uh, Daniel Bartol and Aaron Halperin and others, sociologists in Israel, have really studied this a great deal and uh, pointed to several um, lessons that we might learn. One of them, for instance, has to do with walls. <laughs> They have found that since the security barrier was put up, it really has decreased contact significantly between Palestinians and Israelis. And this has led to an increase in fear 
because we tend to fear what our imagination um, heightens uh, and that actual contact can reduce that kind of fear. Uh, there was a f- famous article by a, the New York Times um, bureau chief, uh, Ethan Bronner, who talked about back in the, even the 1990s, he would um, go into the West Bank on weekends to have his car fixed or eat the best hummus in the world or uh, whatever it was. But there were regular contacts back and forth. All that now stopped after the security barrier in 2002. Uh, Palestinians who went into Israel to work uh, had um, people went to one another's weddings. All of this being stopped, and as a result, fear increases. Um, I think that's likely to be um, borne out also by uh, the U.S., for example, if we proceed with the wall on the southern border. Uh, Israeli sociologists also point to a difference between kind of factual fear and symbolic fear. Uh, in Israel, for example, there's a great demographic fear that uh, the Palestinian Arab population is increasing faster than the uh, Jewish population, and uh, this will lead to a loss of uh, Jewish identity in the future. It's an um, understandable fear, I suppose, but it's um, hard to justify. It, it doesn't have immediate threat to it. It's long-term. And so as a result, often those symbolic threats are turned into um, perceived real ones so that um, there's a, you, you try to show that these persons that you fear in the future can actually be a threat in the present. For example, here in the United States, um, this um, fear of a changing demographic in our country, that the country is becoming more brown and black and Asian or whatever, um, it's hard to justify saying that. And so as a result, we turn it into a real fear. These immigrants are criminals and rapists, and we must fear them, even though all the statistics show that's not the case, um, that immigrants tend to be um, have lower crime rates and so on than uh, native-born Americans. But we, we uh, turn the symbolic threat into a, a real one. Uh, Israeli experience uh, shows that to be the case there, and um, we can learn a lot by looking at that one. I want to turn now to uh, religion and how religious communities uh, can respond to this. I'm going to put this negatively at first. Uh, my childhood religion was one of a fundamentalist variety, and it was rather a terror-inducing religion, very afraid of hell. And this seems to be a common experience. I had a guest on this program uh, recently, Maggie Rowe, who spent time in a mental hospital because of her fear uh, that she couldn't be certain that she wouldn't, uh, uh, that God wouldn't send her to hell. And that was taught by her religion. So many of my secular listeners who know about this type of turn or burn Christianity, which is the loud voice of Christianity and uh, ultimately of religion in America, will wonder if religion is really the problem and and not a solution to our culture of fear. How how would you address uh, the critics there? Yeah, I appreciate the question a lot, and I appreciate the comments that you uh, refer to a lot. You know from reading the book that I make this point also, that uh, my argument in some ways is counterintuitive. It's more a um, an aspiration than it is a, a reality, because uh-huh. religion has been a source of fear for many. But its teachings, if we took them seriously, are a counter to fear. So it's important for us to name what those teachings are and to renew our own traditions by teaching the best of them in order that we might be a counterweight to the fearfulness in the culture. But uh, the point is right. Um, When I talk to secular friends about this book, many of them respond just as you talked about also. Um, That's not how I think about religion. Religion is uh, more a source of fear, more the problem than uh, than it is a solution. And I think also, because this is a progressive program, um, so that I'm not simply speaking to the choir, let me say also that um, uh, many of the churches, for example, that I come out of, more progressive uh, Christianity, uh, also live um, in fear. We're fear of declining members, we're fear of losing clout in the society, we uh, fear that we're going to fall apart if we press certain justice issues too much. So it's hard for us also to bear witness against fear when we're living uh, uh, with fear ourselves. 
So part of what this book is a call to is a kind of call to renewal, that our churches learn to live less fearfully, and part of that means living with other faith communities. One of the ways in which we um, can demonstrate that um, uh, a love that casts out fear is by living openly with um, neighbors of other faiths. So part of it's a call to interfaith relations as itself a um, counter-witness. But you're right, fear has often been associated with religion, and um, we need to address that as well. In your book, you have a couple of chapters, one on um, recommendations to religious communities and another a study guide. Uh, you talk about creating a space uh, within one's community for openly discussing fears. How important is that, and how, how might that be done? Yeah, I think it's very important. Uh, well, I appreciate your mentioning the study guide. The book is only 100 pages long with a study guide because I want it to be used for this sort of study. And I'll mention, uh, by the way, that here in San Diego, even before the book uh, came out, I live in, in San Diego, the uh, Episcopal Cathedral, St. Mark's, the Islamic Center of San Diego, and Or Shalom, a conservative, large conservative synagogue downtown San Diego, did a joint study of the book. Uh, where they came together on Sunday mornings, interestingly, because it was a common time that was available, uh, for presentations from the various religious communities, and then broke into small discussion groups that met during the week. You know, they were on Wednesday nights as a way of uh, trying to get to know one another better and um, uh, reducing the fear that might be felt among the religious community in order that they could speak about it more uh, faithfully and fully in the culture. I participated only in the first of those sessions, but um, was told that it was a very successful kind of study. And that one of the things that it may engender is more study within the communities themselves about how their own tradition teaches um, about fear. If we don't see our religious communities as safe places where we can have these conversations, then, of course, fears will fester and they'll continue to be um, um, a witness for fear more than against it. Just to give an example, um, in Islam, the, the dominant note all the way through the Quran is um, a fear of Allah, which is... Um, a justified fear, a, a legitimate fear, is the one who is um, the creator of all things. But it means more a reverence or a awe in the face of uh, of God's power in creation. And it's coupled all the way through Islamic tradition uh, with hope. So fear can be a useful way of reminding us of ethical obligations, for example, in Islam. But if it becomes exaggerated, then it leads to despair and a kind of um, quietism that doesn't engage actively in the world. So it needs always to be balanced by hope, uh, which then leads us to action um, on the basis of these ethical principles that, that fear may help to, um, to, uh, to teach. So in Islam, uh, you get that kind of balance. In Buddhism, you don't really have that, because um, um, there it would be, in some sense, um, um, putting our trust again in the wrong things, even to hope in the future, because the focus is more on uh, how we perceive the present more uh, rightly, uh, more skillfully. So there are differences in the ways in which religious communities deal with it, but in both cases, fear is seen as hazardous to human health, especially when it's exaggerated, and there's a common witness that could be made, even across uh, the traditions East and West. One of the recommendations in your book is to have dialogue with people with whom we genuinely disagree, and I get asked this one a lot, especially since the election. Uh, how do I talk to my family member, to my friend? How do we dialogue uh, with those who are in disagreement with us? So what do you say? Well, uh, it, it, it really is a great challenge today. We're very polarized, as you know, as a society. And so my hope is that uh, this will address some of that. I've written about that in a lot in other places. And there are guidelines in the book about uh, how we talk to those who, with whom we, um, we disagree. And I think it might be good to take a look at those. Um, but uh, it starts at home uh, in all of our communities. We also 
live with people in the same pew, I imagine, who don't see uh, through the same eyes that we do ideologically. And so um, it would be important to um, to start there. And one of the things is to allow others to define themselves. That's one of the guidelines that I begin with. We often, I think, today define in advance almost who the other is. And uh, listening to others as they speak about their own sense of who they are and what are the fears that drive them can be um, an important part of this process. Some of this also comes from um, my own experience. I had a book that I published in 2014 on uh, the ecumenical interfaith future. And I have a chapter in there on how do we maintain Jewish-Christian dialogue, for example, when we disagree about the Middle East. Yeah, I think that's an issue that Christians and Jews uh, really wrestle with in this country. And uh, I have um, a chapter on that in which I asked a friend of mine, who at that time was the head of the Jewish Council on Public Affairs, to offer a response. And um, we hammer out certain guidelines together. So, for instance, uh, one of the ones uh, that I put in there and in this book as well is to be sensitive to the fears and the pressures that weigh on others. I was often um, uh, asked as head of the National Council of Churches uh, by some Jews, why do you care about issues of the Middle East when you don't have a dog in this fight? As if there weren't Christians all across the Middle East. Uh, And as if their voice wasn't one that we were listening to, just as Jews were listening to the voice of uh, co-religionists across Israel. So how do we listen to those things that are really worrying the other and take those seriously? Um, Another that we tried to work out a lot was to recognize positions as um, part of a continuum rather than either or. Uh, On the gun debate in this country, for example, there's a lot of room between opposing all gun regulation and severely restricting private ownership of guns. Uh, where do we fall on a spectrum rather than either or? And we um, try to work on that a lot also. And and so various uh, recommendations like that uh, that are in the book. The Witness of Religion in an Age of Fear is the book by uh, Michael Kinneman. Michael, thank you so much uh, for this book, for being with me and talking about an important thing about how we can uh, reduce this culture of fear. John, I appreciate it very much. Uh, Appreciate your program. Today's theme is Courageous Awakening. My next guest is the author of several books on spiritual psychology. His latest is The Leap, The Psychology of Spiritual Awakening. Steve Taylor from Manchester, England, after the break. I'm John Schock. This is Progressive Spirit. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. Today's theme is Courageous Awakening. Steve Taylor is a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University and the author of several best-selling books on psychology and spirituality. For the last four years, he's been included this year at number 62 in Mind, Body, Spirit magazine's list of the 100 most spiritually influential living people. He's with me via Skype from the UK to talk about spiritual awakening. Welcome, Steve Taylor, to Progressive Spirit. Hi, John. It's great to be here. Your website lists nine books uh, that you've written, including a number of essays and poems. Can you take a few moments, uh, I know this is a big question, but a few moments to give your our listeners an overview of the literature that you write and, and where this new book, The Leap, fits into your thought? Um, yeah, okay. Um, I... I, th- I think of myself as a spiritual psychologist. So I look at um, kind of spiritual aspects of the human psyche. I'm interested in um, expansive states of being, spiritual experiences, transcendental states of being. 
and the effects that they have on our behavior and on our lives. So most of my books deal with different aspects of expansive states of being. And I, for example, I wrote a book called Making Time, which was about how time behaves in different ways in higher states of consciousness or in mystical states. I wrote a book called uh, Out of the Darkness, which, which was about how um, people often shift into a higher state of being in states of intense psychological turmoil. And my latest book, The Leap, is it's a kind of a summary of the last 10 years of my research into spiritual awakening and spiritual experiences. Um, so it kind of brings all the strands together of my different books. It's kind of like a, a summation of my different books. But I also write uh, spiritual poetry. I've written two books of um, spiritual poems. The last one was called The Calm Center. And you have a degree, a PhD, in transpersonal psychology. What is transpersonal psychology? Well, transpersonal psychology is is uh, really spiritual psychology. Uh, I sometimes think it should be called spiritual psychology. But it basically means transpersonal means uh, beyond the person, beyond the self. So it's about, um, you know, again, it's about expansive states of being when we transcend the ego and we, we connect with other human beings, uh, we connect with nature, we connect with the whole universe, and we seem to lose our individuality. So transpersonal psychology is really the, the study of those states of being. Uh, I'm speaking with Steve Taylor. He's the author of The Leap, The Psychology of Spiritual Awakening. And you write in your book that this that uh, awakening, the opposite of being awake, would be being asleep. And this falling asleep um, happened to us uh, within history. Is that right? H- how did we fall asleep and become disconnected and, and lost uh, in abstractions and thoughts? Uh, about 10 years ago, I wrote a book called The Fall, in which I suggested that the um, the Christian myths of the fall and other cultures' myths of a similar event are based on a psychological change which human beings underwent maybe around 6,000 years ago. Uh-huh. And all of the kind of archaeological and anthropological evidence suggests that before that time, human beings didn't really have a sense of individuality. They were, or they didn't have a strong sense of individuality is probably the best way to put it, because they had some sense of individuality, but it wasn't an individuality which led to a sense of separateness and duality. And many of the world's indigenous peoples retained this earlier state of uh, connection to nature. And again, many, many anthropological accounts of indigenous peoples suggest that they don't have the same kind of sharp and strong sense of individuality, which kind of modern so-called civilized Western peoples have. I mean, the fall was basically a fall into separateness. It was a fall uh-huh. into disconnection. Uh, so it, it was when human beings experienced a sense of separateness to nature, a sense of separateness to their own bodies. They began to experience themselves as egos that live inside their bodies. And I mean, that there was a positive side of the fall. The positive side of the fall was that human beings became more acutely, uh, they kind of became more intelligent in an abstract, logical way. They became more technologically adept. So that led to, you know, a lot of uh, technological advances, which led to the first civilizations. And so there's a shadow side to that. And what was lost was um, non-dualism in some respects. Yeah, yeah, that's right. What was lost was a sense of connection to nature, a sense of respect to nature, and also a sense of uh, communal sensibility, a sense of egalitarianism. I mean, it's, um, most anthropologists agree that um, the early hunter-gatherers who existed until about 10,000 years ago, until that time, all human beings lived as hunter-gatherers in small groups of maybe 40 or 60. But the, the original hunter-gatherer groups are very egalitarian and very democratic, and women have equal status with men. So that's another thing we, that we lost. We, you know, the fall led to the advent of hierarchical societies and it led to male domination. It led to intensive warfare and so on. I'm speaking with Steve Taylor. He's the author of The Leap, The Psychology of Spiritual Awakening. Well, let's talk about um, the awakening itself. And you mentioned in their book that uh, basically three ways that people uh, can experience this awakening. Um, they're either they kind of have it come by it naturally or and then mm-hmm. the idea of long term practice. And then the one that uh, the idea of uh, personal turmoil or trial uh, can lead to that. Can you talk a little bit more about awakening and how that happens? Yeah, well, the first way is through uh, just natural wakefulness, as you described. It's when people don't make an effort to be awake. Nothing happens to them. They don't follow spiritual practices. They just are innately and naturally awake as their normal state. 
So there, there aren't many of those people around, but often those people become creative artists. They become poets, uh, maybe painters. So a lot of the famous poets in history were awakened, naturally awakened individuals. The great example is my, my favorite American poet, Walt Whitman, a really great example of a, a naturally awakened person, a very intensely awakened person. And you've got painters like Turner, the British painter who I really like, uh, maybe Monet, the French painter. They were just naturally awakened people. And maybe sometimes people who are naturally awake become social idealists as well because they have a strong sense of altruism, a strong sense of mission and a desire to, to contribute to the human race. So someone like Florence Nightingale, for example, the, who founded the profession of modern nursing, she was a very uh, intensely naturally awakened person. So the second way is gradual wakefulness. And there are probably hundreds of millions of people in the world who follow some form of spiritual practice, whether it's meditation or whether it's uh, maybe they're, they're monks or um, practicing many spiritual exercises every day, living a very spiritual, quiet life of contemplation. But anybody who follows meditation or follows a spiritual path is following a path of gradual wakefulness over years or over decades. They are gradually remolding their psyche into an awakened state. And finally, there is a sudden and dramatic wakefulness, which most often, as you said before, most often occurs in relation to intense psychological turmoil. So it's usually people who are diagnosed with cancer or another serious illness. Maybe they're told they only have a certain amount of time left to live. It could be people who recover from an accident or uh, people who become disabled. It could be people who suffer a bereavement or who suffer from severe depression or alcoholism. And often when these people reach a point of rock bottom, when they think they've lost everything, a shift occurs inside them. The, their old self seems to die away. And in its place, a new self seems to emerge like a phoenix or like a, uh, like a butterfly emerging from a chrysalis. And that's, well, that's what I call sudden and dramatic wakefulness. So, um, okay, I'm not natural, and I don't know if I've got the time to meditate for 20 years, but what I do have, what everybody else has, is that we all have an experience of suffering. Uh, we all experience our, uh, our mortality in, in a sense. Mm. Is, is that, is that um, perhaps part of the wakefulness is recognizing uh, our mortality? Definitely, yeah. I mean, when people are diagnosed with cancer and they have a, a sudden awakening, then it usually is about death. You know, uh -huh. a diagnosis of cancer is uh, a threat of death, a very real and intense threat of mortality. And when you become intensely aware of mortality, everything changes. Um, right. You become very present centered. The future ceases to matter. The past ceases to exist. And you also... Um, become, you, you also undergo a process of what I call psychological detachment. So that means that all of the things that you maybe depended upon, depended upon for your well-being or your identity, such as your ambitions, um, your wealth, your status, your possessions, your role in society, all of these things give you a sense of identity and a sense of uh, security. But when you're, when you're faced with death, all of these things are potentially taken away from you. So you let go of all of these things. And that process of letting go is probably the most uh, important factor in awakening. So it's really, um, it's really just a, an intense encounter with mortality, which brings about this process of uh, letting go. Um, so to an extent, we can all cultivate that just by being um, very conscious of, of mortality. Yeah, because it isn't necessarily uh, the traumatic event in itself. It's something that we do to uh, grow from it. I mean, there is, there is some something that we do need to do, isn't it? And, and perhaps isn't that the practice that we're talking about in uh, in wakefulness is is how to become aware. I mean, you can, people can mm. have all kinds of tragedies and still be asleep. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in fact, um, you know, we all go through. Every single human being goes through intense suffering, uh -huh. intense trauma at some time in their life. But probably only a relatively small proportion of people undergo spiritual awakening in response to that trauma. So I, th I think there are, there are probably two important factors here. Uh, one is acknowledging your suffering or your trauma. 
So that means facing up to your predicament. So a lot of the time when we face trauma or suffering, we like to divert our attention from it, distract ourselves. We like to delude ourselves about the reality of our predicament, which is, you know, that's understandable. But if you want to undergo development or transformation through suffering, you have to really face up to the the reality of your situation, even if it seems to be a terrible reality, you have to turn to it and face it. And then the second most important step is acceptance. So you have to surrender to your predicament in some way. You have to let go of resistance and completely embrace, in a way, your situation. And once you do that, once you accept and surrender to your predicament, then that seems to activate the transformational potential of the situation. And it's not uh, uh, individuals can become awake as we're talking about, but also societies themselves and countries. I, I, I don't I don't know about your country, but I think my country is pretty much asleep uh, in, <laughs> in the way. I mean, just and, and my uh, evidence for that is this. Um, seemingly unending quest uh, to control everything, uh, you know, whether militarily or whatever, and not necessarily to go into politics mm. on all of this, but I, I, I feel that there's a desperation um, uh, about uh, perhaps modern society, uh, materialistic modern society that that just is, needs to grab and cling and um, control and is trying to control its future rather than perhaps wake up and, and live in the present. What would you tell us about? Can you talk about uh, that awakefulness on a societal mm. level? Well, what, what you said is true, but it only, it's only true to an extent. Usually um, the higher echelons of society, certainly political positions, are usually filled with people who are very soundly asleep, very acutely asleep, because those people have a very strong desire for accumulation. They have a very strong desire for power, a very strong desire for wealth, a very strong desire to dominate other people. But if you're awake, you don't have those desires. You don't have the desire to accumulate wealth or power or anything like that. So usually people who are awake don't are not so visible. They're not in those high status social positions. But I think in America, I think in Europe as well, in my country, Britain, even though there are many signs of sleep, there are also many signs of wakefulness amongst the country as a whole. Okay. And I, I think even if you go back 300 years in history, you can see the beginnings of wakefulness starting to arise in societies. So if you go back to the uh, to the sort of late 18th century, for example, it was the time of uh, the ro ro romanticism in poetry and music. It was the time of uh, egalitarian philosophies, uh, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. And even though those revolutions may have been violent, they were propelled by ideals of egalitarianism. It was also the time of the beginning of the animal rights movement, anti-slavery movement, the women's movement. And all of these signs were that human beings, some human beings were developing a sense of compassion, a sense of connection. They were beginning to empathize with other human beings and also other creatures, which led to the animal rights movement. And those, um, you know, those trends continued in the 19th century with the rise of socialism, socialist philosophies, and through the 20th century, with increasing openness to the body, which suggests uh, which suggests transcending the sense of separateness or the sense of duality to the body. And also things like the ecological, environmental movements, which suggests a new connection to nature, vegetarianism, veganism, all this suggests a, a sense of empathy for animals. So all of these are, are signs of gradual awakefulness. And over the last sort of two or three decades, there's been this massive interest in spiritual philosophies and spiritual practices and uh, which is also i think a sign of awakefulness so i think that um, at the moment there's kind of like a, a a conflict between sleep and wakefulness so some of the characteristics of sleep are still very strong such as materialism uh, and uh, domination of nature the desire to dominate other countries and so forth those ideals are still strong but also there are some ideals of wakefulness, some characteristics of wakefulness, which are also growing stronger. So a lot of the, the cultural conflicts we we witness at the moment, such as you know, the, the protests against President Trump um, in America, it's really a, a battle. I say it's a battle between gradually developing wakefulness and the old characteristics of sleep. Um, you've written some poetry and have some of it uh, on your website as well as some books. And I was wondering if you'd share uh, one of your poems with us. 
Okay, yeah, I'd love to. Um, I'll, read a po- I'll read a poem from my book, The Calm Centre. And this is a poem called The Core. It's about the, uh, the journey of awakening and uh, the importance of recognising um, and living authentically. So this is The Core. It can take a whole lifetime to become yourself. Years of feeling adrift and alone, acting in a role you were never meant to play, stammering in a language you weren't meant to speak, wearing clothes that don't fit, trying to pass yourself off as normal, but always feeling clumsy and unnatural, like a stranger pretending to be at home, knowing that everyone can sense your strangeness and resent you because they know you don't belong. But slowly, through years of exploration, you see landmarks that you recognize, hear vague whispers that seem to make sense, strangely familiar words, as if you had spoken them yourself, and ideas that resonate deep down, as if you already knew them. And slowly, your confidence grows, and you walk faster, sensing the right direction, feeling the magnetic pull of home. And now you begin to excavate, to peel away the layers of conditioning, to shed the skins of your flimsy false self until you reach the solid rock beneath, the shining molten core of you. And now, There's no more uncertainty. Your path is clear. Your course is fixed. This bedrock bedrock of your being is so firm and so stable that there's no need for acceptance, no fear of exclusion or ridicule. Everything you do is right and true, deep and whole with authenticity. But don't stop. This is only the halfway point, maybe even just the beginning. Once you've reached the core, keep exploring, but more subtly. Keep excavating, but more delicately. And you'll keep unearthing new layers, finding new depths. Until you reach the point that is no point, where the core dissolves and the solid rock melts like ice, and the self loses its boundary and expands to encompass the whole. A self even stronger and truer, because it's no self at all. A self you had to find so that you could lose it. Stephen Taylor reading a poem, The Core. Uh, He is the author of The Leap, The Psychology of Spiritual Awakening, uh, which we are talking about today. One of the chapters in your book that I really appreciated is demythologizing wakefulness, Uh, thinking of all of the myths that people might have about being wakeful, talking about living in the moment, not worrying about uh, the future so much or the past. Uh, And people might uh, say that, well, that wakefulness is a form of passivity. It's um, disconnecting from the world or detaching from the world and not, you know, getting involved in, in making things right. Uh, and and you make some great responses to that. I want to give you a chance to uh, perhaps uh, demythologize some of those myths. Yeah, well, yeah, there is this myth that wakefulness makes people indifferent to suffering uh-huh. and indifferent to, to worldly problems, to global problems. But in my research, that's not actually the case. I found that um, awakened people actually become more um, connected to other people. And they, still, they are still concerned about global problems, about other people's suffering, because they have a, they are, well, they are more concerned because they have a stronger sense of compassion, a strong sense of empathy. And what usually happens is that um, they feel that they have a sense of mission in some way. They, they have a mission to contribute to the world whether it's to alleviate suffering or to help the human race's development, to make people aware of their true nature. But they feel this strong sense of mission. And many awakened people do become social activists. You know, a lot, a lot of the great social reformers in human history 
were awakened individuals. I mentioned um, Florence Nightingale either, um, sorry, earlier. And you have people like Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and they, they were certainly awakened to some degree as well. So that's, um, that's one big myth about awakening. And maybe one more myth I can mention is that um, the myth that awakening is unusual or extraordinary. Because I found in my research that um, there are actually quite a lot of awakened people around. Um, but what happens is that a lot of people, when they become awake, they don't know anything about spiritual practices or spiritual traditions. They're just um, seemingly ordinary people who live uh, a seemingly ordinary life. And they undergo this shift, usually in response to intense psychological turmoil. And at first, they don't understand it because they know nothing about spirituality. And it can take them several years before they actually work out what's happened to them. So my feeling is that, that there are a lot of um, awakened people around who don't even know that they are awake. And certainly the more I investigated the phenomenon, the more and more cases I found. So wakefulness is, um, you know, it's not just for um, monks in Tibet or in India. It's not just for gurus who live in ashrams. It's not just for monks who, who live in monasteries. It most frequently happens to seemingly ordinary people in everyday life. Steve Taylor has been my guest. He's the author of The Leap, The Psychology of Spiritual Awakening, uh, a very valuable book and a very valuable lesson. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Taylor, for being with me today and for this work. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure. Progressive Spirit is heard every week on several radio stations across the country. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed through the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, the Pacifica Radio Network, and College Broadcasting Incorporated. You can catch Progressive Spirit on podcast, hear it on your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear and listen on iTunes or Stitcher or any app that has a place for a review, please leave one. More reviews help the show get a wider audience. And if you have ideas for guests or would like to comment on an episode, contact me through my website, progressivespirit.net. You can comment on Facebook. You can retweet on Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be well. <laughs>